And that album that uh, Reggie was talking about is called Appropriately The Beginning uh, in 1979. And although it, it didn't do uh, that great on the charts, I'm sure it must have been a thrill when you saw that in record stores or, or heard, it, heard it at all. I actually remember hearing Make It Last back then, and I thought it was a great track, but um, you know, I guess maybe radio didn't get behind it enough, but what was it like when you first uh, uh, you know, saw it in the stores and, and heard it on the radio? Uh, it was incredible. and I mean, they really got a first-class treatment on that first album, too. Dick Griffey said, who you want to produce the album? You know, we didn't really know what a producer was. Uh, and doing a little research, and then uh, we knew we wanted to be jazzy and, and funky, and, and uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire was our idols, and we wanted to get into that level of uh, musicality and, and even musicianship as well. So uh, we hired Harvey Mason to produce mm -hmm. that album, and, uh, and Harvey brought with him some of the greatest uh, session musicians and arrangers that Los Angeles had to offer, because he was, he was the man. That was a, that was a great experience, uh, right there to meet to meet and to work with. And you know, when we we used you know, live strings and and the whole thing, you know, on this album, there was no there was no no corners cut. We overdid it. <laughs> and when we finished the album, Dick Griffey once again says, "It's good. It's got some great music on it, but I, I you know, I, I need a single. What's the single?" And uh, you know, we were. Definitely trying to uh, make a musical mark rather than a single mark. <laughs> we thought we thought we were making singles. We had a lot to learn. So Dick said, "I want you guys to work with this young guy, uh, Leon Silvers. I think you like working with him. You can come up with a hit." And uh, you know, what do you think? We're like, "Well, we can, we'll give it a shot. We'll try anything." Uh, so he said, "Well, let me let me hear some things that you guys are working on." So we go back to uh, Rich's house and. And once again, the pots and pans come come in handy uh, because we cut the demo with pots and pans and just all vocals and no live instruments of Make It Last. And, uh, you know, Gant, the bass player, he's singing the bass line and the guitar players are singing the guitar parts and, and you know, we're singing along the horns and uh, imagining how this song will go. And we actually made this cassette demo, uh, just, just vocals and pots and pans and whatever we could we could key up and he says yeah that's it that's that's cool let's go cut it so leon silver uh produced make it last and uh you know and then there, you know it's more what people understand also in picking a hit single it's not only the music it's the timing it's the record company it's the money spent it's being in the right place it's what what's out at that time where is music at that time? You know, how does it fit in? What's the, what's the slang word? What's the gimmick? You know, there's all these factors. Uh, so that song, uh, being a nice song, uh, didn't, uh, you know, didn't, didn't knock the roof off. And I think we were, we were going, we were in between dis, uh, distributors, which was changing multiple dis distribution companies, all in the midst of different albums. So those kind of things can have a, a major effect. You got two different promotion guys going to going to record company with the same record. <laughs> Radio's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of like how the first three albums went down. A lot of different stuff, a lot of learning on all ends, a lot of settling in. But uh, yeah, so that was that was make it last. And then we moved into the second album, which was standing together. And by this time we wanted to uh, try more songs with Leon. Uh, you know, going for that, that beautiful sound and, and the whole deal. 
Yeah, so, you know, it's funny you mentioned Earth, Wind & Fire because I kind of picked up on that a little bit. You know, the artwork even of that first album was similar to some of the Earth, Wind & Fire vibe and the, and the large, you know, horn-based uh, funk uh, band approach uh, for Earth, Wind & Fire. But you guys evolved from that. Um, it was good as Dick Griffey because we actually hired the same artist that did Earth, Wind & Fire's albums mm -hmm. in the beginning. <laughs> and so it's exactly the same guy. We were, we were, we were Earth, Wind & Fire nuts. I was just hanging out with, with uh, Ralph Johnson and Bernie White the other night as I was uh, elected into the uh, board of directors for the California Copyright Conference the night we were uh, featuring those guys. So I'm telling them all these stories and they're telling me their stories and uh, what, a, what a treat. So Reggie, we're uh, at the second album, Staying Together, which you know didn't hit um, like maybe you would have liked it to, but it had definitely some nice tracks. So Staying Together and Tough uh, were cooking pretty good. Um, you know, so you were building something clearly, but you maybe didn't know exactly what you were building to at that point. How did you feel about you know the level of success it was achieving at that time? Were you still excited? Were you a little bit frustrated? A little bit disillusioned? What was your head at? Uh, you know, it was starting to get a little, well, you know, going into it, um, you know, we did the, uh, we did two beautiful, couple of beautiful videos out of that. Tough was, uh, still stands today. And uh, in fact, some dancers have reimagined Tough with, uh, with new choreography. It's on, it's YouTube is blowing up. But we, we knew what we were doing was, was revolutionary and, and really good. Uh, so that we did the Can't Give You Up, which was a, a really, really beautiful ballad. So when it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take over the, over the radio, you still can, you st as young as we were, we, we didn't really know how radio really worked. So, you know, we would go by all the stations and, and meet the guys as we were on our tours and, you know, ask them, would you play our record? We weren't, we didn't know the whole system of how everything works. And music was, was, was changing too, because you had that period where disco was so was still kind of lingering around and and that was the last thing we were going to do was disco so we weren't going to buy into that part of it so kind of trying to be who we were we wanted to we, we knew we wanted to do funk but we wanted to be musical so sometimes you can put too much music into funk which is what a lot of our early production uh consists of and uh that second album uh leon was the producer up until the end and you know, Leon was he, was he was teaching me and training. You know, let me hang out with him all the time. You know, learn how to cut vocals and, and rhythm tracks, and you know, and uh, you know, live instruments and the whole deal. At the end of the project, Leon was with the, his own group, Dynasty. They were going to Africa, so he already had a tour set to go to Africa. So so Leon left me at the helm of, of the second album while he went to Africa. So I had to, uh, of course, finish the project and, and mix all the songs and master all the songs with the great uh, Steve Howells, which was a, 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 another education within itself. So that 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 whole learning ground, you know, just uh, propelled and, and Dick Griffey always had a way of, of upping it one. So the so the upping from that one was the third album. Okay, you guys go do it yourself. And that was the Victory album, uh, which we cut 90% uh, of that in Cincinnati, as opposed to uh, Los Angeles. And um, really, you know, ex exploring, discovering ourselves, seeing what our strengths are. Uh, that's where uh, we'd be in in the morning and Roger Troppin would come in around five and stick his head in the door and he'd say, ah, so y'all still playing that pretty music? Keep playing that pretty music. What he was really telling us was, that ain't funky enough, guys. 
He's rousing you, huh? Yeah, he was rousing. He was more bounced to the ounce. They were killing the game. And uh, we had we had no real hits. And uh, uh, in fact, we had Bootsy on that album. Yeah, Hot Spot. Yeah, Hot, Hot Spot was, was definitely uh, going for a single. That was going for it. You know, that was really digging in. And, uh, and and trying to make it happen, uh, but still, uh, you know, still learning the, the production techniques and still learning what uh, how to you know how to how to get it there, you know, uh, how to make it where it's undeniable because the, the hits where you have to buy the hit, you know, that doesn't last too long. But the hit that comes on and everybody in the room knows it's just a hit and they have to have it. The promotion man would later say, "You guys made my job easy." Because they just put it on at the club. When you put freakers on on at the club, it's a wrap. <laughs> so by that, you know, by by the freakers on album, we figured it out. <laughs> how, how 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 did, how did you uh, get Bootsy on that track? Was he just hanging around, or how did that happen? No, Bootsy's like you know, he's like our big brother. So you know, uh, we do things for. Well, actually, we had we had to written and produced some things for him during that same period. You know, so uh, so it was kind of like a trade off. You know. Uh, so that was a really just a cool a cool time, but he's, he, he is the promotion man. <laughs> he learned from James Brown everything about music business, of how to uh, how to be a star, how to promote yourself, how to appear in the right places, and, and all that good stuff. So you know he was he was happy to do it, and he could, he could see where we were going. I mean there was nothing you know there was nothing out there like what we were doing. Uh, he, he, he wanted to be a part of it, and he, he just—he loves me and my brother. You know, we just, just came up. We're just part of the same cloth, the Cincinnati boys. <laughs> so, uh, Reggie, you're three records in, and you're building a following gradually. And you're—you're, you're, you know, all every step of the way. I think you know you're learning more. You're elevating your game even even that much more. But um, you know, you mentioned Leon Silvers and um, Dick Dick Griffey, of course, and those guys. But I mean, that stable at Solar was something special. I mean, they were kind of like a Los Angeles Motowns in a way, you know, with Shalimar and um, Lakeside you mentioned and, and all the people groups had and Babyface and Ellie Reed and all that. What was it like being in that Solar environment with those guys? I mean, did you hang out much with them and you absorbed whatever you could? Yeah, you know, we, we um Lakeside being from Dayton, so there, you know, there's a, there's a camaraderie with there. The whispers just, just super respect. I mean, um, after we did get our first hit, then you know, we began to produce all those guys as, as much as possible. You know, with the whisper songs, climax. That's how that all started up. Uh, but but in, within that early stage, I mean, if you can imagine, we're getting ready to record the second album. He was either the first album or the second album, but Dick Griffey comes in the in the studio and he says, uh, check this song out, because he wanted to hear a test pressing and he wanted to hear it and test it in the, in the room. He said, check this song, I want, you know, I want you to hear this and I want to test this out. And, uh, and that song was Second Time Around by Shalimar. And I heard that beautiful production and that Crystal song, and I'm like, that's a hit. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> it was just so, it was so incredible. And Leon production, you know, with how he was voicing and uh, Jeffrey and Jody just just totally amazing. So we had to compete with that. And Lakes, Lakeside had already had you know their hits, Fantastic Voyage, and the Whispers, of course, were legends. They you know they had hits since the freaking '60s and '50s. Um, so you, you're you're feeling all of that. 
but you but you you still feel cool because you're at a small company. You know, if you're at if you're at Columbia or somewhere that's you know has got a hundred artists, and uh, you know one day every day somebody's getting dropped. You know, here we are. You know, going into a second album, going into a third album, and Griffey's still hanging with us. So after the third album, then that's when it really was like you know you know three strikes you're out. It's like wow, like what you know what are we going to do? <clears throat> we got all the stuff that we've learned over the years. But the uh, you know, so we, we draw a line in the sand. We say, okay, we have to make hits. We have to, we have we have to make hits, you know. Because I, I went to the, the period of going to publishing houses and said, do you have any any good songs? And they would always give us what you would think would maybe with the B or C songs. I'm like I'm like we can we can actually do better than this. So but we got we got to go to work, you know. So we began to really really dig deep and and have that attitude that okay we're gonna make an album with every song on it is 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 very good uh, as hit, hit potential. That way we got eight chances to have a single instead of, you know, one or two singles and, and six or seven songs. It's like, it's not going to make the album. If you can't stand on its own, it's, it's not going down this time. And the the highlight, you know, we, we brought in uh, Pablo Davis, who was uh, to management along with my mother. And uh, Pablo had a lot of uh, experience as a concert promoter, a lot of street, street value in terms of uh, just being around hit music and, and knowing what it took and, and refocusing, so we refocused the whole group to uh, to where we where you know it was more stations of what has to be done. You know, uh, it was the cookings over here, the horns over there, the writings over here, rehearsals were there, exercises going this way, choreographies. You know, everything had a sort of a, a place that, that could make it, it was kind of like the Ford, like like, like making a Ford car. <laughs> and uh, but the real uh, turnaround, I wrote uh, our road manager was tight with Quincy Jones. So Quincy was performing in Indianapolis, which was about an hour and a half, two hours away. So we all go to Indianapolis to see Quincy, and uh, we, you know we get in with passes and, and we get backstage passes. So, so, so I'm backstage. I get to talk, I get to talk to Quincy for like you know 30, 40 minutes, one on one backstage. And uh, I always say he taught me everything I needed to know about production <laughs> in that particular <laughs> gathering. And it had nothing to do with you know a flat five chord or uh, you know triplets or, or or this kind of microphone. Uh, it was the psychology of production, which is what it really really comes down to. So, so the, the key factors were number one: there's no democracy in music, meaning you got a nine-piece band. You cannot have nine opinions to determine whether it goes this way or goes that way. It's got to be one concise mind. You can listen to all the nine ideas, but when it comes down to it, you have to make the final decision or you make no decision and you have a lukewarm record. So that was the first thing. You had to break up all this idea that everybody's producing the record. It's like, no, no, there's, there's one producer. And then the other thing was, if, if, it, if it makes the hair bumps on your arms rise up and you hear it back, then you know you have something. You know, Don't go trying to fix it. Don't mess it up. Don't lose it. <laughs> Learn how to preserve it. And and another one is, if if you add an instrument, and it takes away from what you had, and doesn't add to the song, take it out. You know. So uh, those those basic principles, uh, you know, open the whole gateway for Midnight Star. So from that day on, there was a whole different regime on that album of, of how uh, you know the, the plan to get it done. You know, no hanging out at the studio. If, if you're recording that day, then come in. If you're not, 
the home writing, you know, so let's, you know, let's, let's, let's get this thing done. And then, uh, so we began to craft it, uh, you know, song after song after song. And the funniest part was the Griffiths said, yeah, let me, let me hear what you guys are working on this time. You know, let me kind of help pick some of the songs, if you don't mind. So we like, we tried it our way. So we sent Dick some songs. He sent Dick about five songs. He said, see, I like that song. I like, yeah, I like that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, go, go ahead and start the album. And I was like, but, but Mr. Griffey, what about that Freakazoid song? You didn't say anything about that song. He said, of course you're going to cut that one. <laughs> Mr. Ears himself, he knew that Freakazoid was, was the, the major song without even uh, you know, hearing it finished. <laughs> so so we're, we're off to the races. And that's the song that, that broke down all the doors and all the barriers that was uh, irresistible that made a way for no parking on the dance floor and an operator and electricity and all the other songs, you know, that song. Wow, so let me uh, jump in here, Richie, and uh, just catch uh, everybody up a little bit. There's a lot of ground covered, and we got to such a major um, landmark, really, in not only Midnight Star, but just music of the 80s and funk music and all that. You know, 1983, when No Parking on the Dance Floor came out, I mean, people that were there maybe realized, but since then, they might not realize the impact that record had. I mean, that record was... Like you said, it was a, a hits throughout the whole thing. And <clears throat> you mentioned Quincy Jones, which is ironic, I think, because the the giant record that year was Thriller by Michael, Michael Jackson, which, of course, he produced. And I think Midnight Star's record, you know, was only rivaled really by Thriller that year in terms of, you know, black radio and, and dance clubs and, and, and that, you know, audience. It was an amazing record. It had not only Freakazoid, and the title cut, but also um, um, Wet My Whistle and Slow Jam, Electricity, you know, it had the ballad, it had the dance tracks, it had the sort of R&B pop flavor to it. You covered all the bases. And not only that, but it was also a big leap in terms of style because there were elements on that record that you really didn't hear so much um, what preceded that. So, you know, do you really credit that uh, advice from Q uh, with the sound itself progressing or, you know, how did that come about? Um, just, um, you know, looking at, at what was going on at the time, you know, it was hip hop was starting to slowly, uh, ease into the game, you know, they call it rap music <clears throat> in the day. And then you had, um, you know, the funk was still, as, you, as your book says, it was still about being on the one. So, uh, you know, so it became, okay, how can we do both of these? And then, and then, like you say, disco was, had, had rolled out, but, but techno that was rolling in, you know, people were using synthesizers. And yeah, I, I can remember the, the very first album, you know, Michael Boddicker had a synthesizer, they took up a whole room. <laughs> it, was, it was like the old computer. It was like all the patch bays and all that stuff. And then, you know, now, you know, they were getting smaller and more, more, more keyboard, more friendly. And uh, so, we, you know, we bought new instruments and began to learn all these sounds. And the idea was was strategic. It was like, okay, how can we how can we take these these synth sounds, this technical sound? Because we were we, we were the horn players, myself, Vincent, and Bill. But horn but horns were not. Uh, uh, selling records like they were back in the Kuna day, Kuna gang days, and the Confunction days, and uh, Cameo days, it was a, it was a new thing. So we had to get out in front of it. 
And uh, I think you know, some, just some of the desperation of, okay, I need to write songs. And I, I can't just write them as if I'm a horn player because, you know, Tough and, and some of those other songs, uh, Hot Spot and uh, You're the Star, I mean, those were, those were incredible horn, horn songs, you know, it was, it was fun writing those arrangements and, and, uh, and having other guys help with some of the, you know, Jerry, well, no, we hadn't met Jerry Hay yet. But, uh, yeah, so it was, it was time for, for a new thing and it was time for us to put the horns down and, and to make sure that the rhythm was right. Uh, so uh, that, that meant studying it and uh, getting out of the way of yourself and uh, uh, getting back on the one, learning just the strategic things of what of what is necessary, where where the breaths are, where where is the funk really really at, and uh, and then accomplishing that, but accomplishing it in a way that nobody had ever done, no one had ever, no one had, there had been techno records, there had been funk records, but there's never been one that had blended it all together and then added melody to it. So techno records didn't necessarily have melody. And the hip hop records, you know, certainly didn't necessarily have melody. So that's what made it really killer was that we brought melody to to funky techno tracks. Yeah, I mean, you talk about impact. And at that time, I was a, a club and mobile disc jockey, and I was very grateful because, I mean, those were always guaranteed to pack the dance floor, no parking, and uh, especially Freakazoid. It was a phenomenon. Um, so thank you for that as a DJ. You're welcome. You're welcome. You followed uh, up uh, uh, that album with Planetary Invasion, which was another you know success. It had Operator. You really kept that vibe uh, uh, going. Um, and then you did one more record with the band, uh, which was Headlines in 1986, I think. And you had another hit uh, with that track. Um, but talk to me about what um, you know happened. Um, you know, that led you to, you know, part ways with Midnight Star as an entity and strike out on your own in the late 1980s and, and produce other acts? Well, probably uh, some of the producing the other acts probably had a, had a lot to do with it. The, uh, you know, we, we produced uh, the Whispers, Whispers, uh, Climax, uh, we had uh, found a deal with L.A. and Babyface and, uh, and did their album, uh, Body Talk, another hit. And uh, of course, Climax was meeting in the ladies' room. Whispers was contagious and some kind of lover. Um, so it was, a, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, one, one idea was to, to build uh, not only a, a band, but a, but a super uh, production company that can, that can last forever and ever. Uh, bands can can tend to come and go, uh, but to you know you got uh, nine people develop a, a ton of music. I mean, we had the ability to develop an uh, extreme amount of music. Uh, so a lot of uh, a lot of times directions can uh, can sort sort of part ways, and that, as well as growth time. You know, it's, it's just time to grow to another another level, depending on what what your personal goals are. Uh, I always knew that I wanted to work with, uh, uh, you know, many, many acts. You know, not just not just Midnight Star. You know, not just be a band uh, for the sake of being a band. I mean, that's which is a, a great, great thing. But uh, you know, I never would have, you know, never would have written Casanova, or never would have uh, worked with Teddy Pendergrass, or, or Natalie Cole, or Gladys Knight, or Pat LaBelle, and just all the people that, that came later. So that's always been a, been a joy. 
also to to write other types of music, you know, not just to do funk or techno funk, but to do uh, just various types of music, pop, and, uh, you know, even if it's classical or gospel, to you'll be able to do every, everything that God gave you to do uh, in, a, in, a, in the confines of a group can sometimes be, be hard or, uh, you know, it may even seem unfair to others because it's, uh, if you have everybody's uh, one, one, for, one for all and all for one in a, in a the Three Musketeers situation, uh, sometimes you have to be uh, a renegade a little bit and, and do your own thing. So many, many things I want to do is on the music side, on the business side, you know, building record companies and building uh, publishing companies and the whole, the whole gamut, you know. So my scope was very, very broad. And it was easier for me to to leave and, and break away than to uh, dismantle the group or, or or rebuild the group or any any of those kind of things. You know, those are my brothers and sisters. So it was just easy for me to say, oh, I think I'm going to go and uh, pursue all these other things that I that I would like to do, as well as even sing. Um, in Midnight Star, I I sung some things in the earlier years, but I let that part of, of my uh, uh, early destiny sort of go. Because we had, uh, you know, great singers and and uh, Bo and Belinda and, and Melvin, and you know, you don't really three is a lot. You don't need four or five, you know, lead singers. So I always knew that uh, that I wanted to sing and I wanted to uh, to do more things like that as well. So the solo and the duo career just afforded all those all those beautiful opportunities. You know, I was working on this one song and uh, and I asked God, I said, God, what what should I do? And uh, the room got really, really silent, and uh, and he yelled in this 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 uh, this soundful voice. He said, "Do whatever you want to do." And uh, so I've been trying to do that. That's that's not that's not even easy. <laughs> you know, I've written theatrical, theatrical plays. I've written. Uh, I'm working on several books. You know, I have uh, all kind of treatments for um, different movies and cartoons and all this stuff. It's like. Uh, and, and now I'm now I'm doing uh, this great finance business to to help other artists uh, uh, feed and fulfill their dreams. So, what an amazing life! Yeah, I'm quite a renaissance man, Reggie. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you like two more questions. Hopefully, if you bear with me here. So, um, one is that the show is called Truth and Rhythm, and so I like to ask you know for artists such as yourself, you know, what does that concept mean to you? And and when you do music, when you create. How do you find truth in creating? Oh, that's uh, that's, that's kind of what we we search for. Uh, the uh, we used to always say, uh, you know, you can't fake the funk, you know, and that, that means you can't uh, just go half-heartedly, you know, at it, and uh, especially cats like myself and. and uh, you know, and I, and I learned a lot from them, of course. It really, uh, it's really serious. It's kind of always when I'm trying to train or teach a drummer or to, to you know, to play music the way we feel it. it it's all, I, I use the, the Mike Tyson uh, example a lot of times. I say when Michael, Mike Tyson says, I, I'm, I'm hitting with bad intentions. Meaning that every time he punches, he's trying to hurt something. Yeah, so it's not just, he's not just throwing a jab like, like, like many other bosses. <laughs> And, and that's the way we get into it. But it also, when you strip it all down, you know, then it comes back to, to the song. You know, so as a songwriter myself, you know, I, I, I try to learn early that, you know, 
if you can't hear it with just a piano and a voice or a guitar and a voice or or no instrument at all, then uh, you, you may not be looking for the truth of it. You know? Some people can look for the easy rhyme and the, and the lyrics become trite and corny. Some people can try to put a hot track behind a bad song and it's still a bad song. You know? So it's uh, getting to the real truth of it. Uh, like Quincy says, does it make the hair on your arm stand up? Do you feel something? Does it make you want to cry? Does it make you want to laugh? Uh, did it educate you? It's, it's got to move the needle some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, before uh, I shut this down, Reggie, uh, I wanted to allow you to say a little bit more about what you're doing nowadays with helping other artists. And you know, are you doing other uh, things musically as well? What, what's at the front burner right now for, for you? Yeah, the, the front burner uh, on, on the business side, is uh, you know help, helping artists to to fund their projects you know through their own annuities that they've created over the years. Uh, it happened to be uh, in, in my career where you know I was receiving royalties, and royalties come at a three months, six months, sometimes even one year basis, and you're always waiting for that check. And there was a time when you could get an advance here from one of those uh, payors, uh, and then that was cut out a lot because. Uh, Quite frankly, was probably abused a lot, and companies lost a lot of money, or, or or a lot of money was left hanging out there. So, not being able to fund myself forced me to look at other options. And uh, going down the road, uh, I was able to uh, to to find some funding and find different ways of doing it using the uh, the income stream itself as an annuity that uh, continues to make money. So, um, after after forming uh, co-founding the the first online platform based of doing that, I eventually partnered with uh, my new partners at Sound Royalties. And upon meeting uh, CEO and founder, Alex Heike, we began to build this thing to an incredible level and in such a short, uh, fantastic time period. But the general idea is that a person's receiving royalties, they have to wait for that money. And it only is what it is when it comes in. But we're able to look at that, analyze it, and then advance out from that. We can advance out a year or we can advance out up to five or six years meaning that that person can pull more money today and take care of the real needs that they have, whether it's uh, building a new studio out, whether it's a down payment for a house, whether it's uh, buying their own publishing bank or paying off some some previous uh, debts or loans. And these are advances. Uh, uh, They're not loans and that person's not selling anything. So they preserve their rights. You know, they don't uh, give their copyrights in perpetuity. It's just uh, they're being monetized for the time period that uh, the deal is set for. And they can still uh, see their income stream to see what's still coming through, which is awesome. We don't advance 100%. We only take a portion so that they can get the overflow when it's when they get a big check. They see that money, and they're not strapped, uh, you know, with their income ceasing to exist because we take a part to pay back the advance, and, and they get the overflow. So that's a, another credible uh, factor. We're just really excited about it, and. Uh, you know, we're, uh, we're we're backed by 18 billion under assets and management. We write deals on our own uh, on our own balance sheet, meaning that we have the money to make this happen. We have the job of trying to invest 100 million dollars into the industry this year. So that's what my challenge is. So I say, uh, please ask for Reggie when you call in the sound royalty because uh, we want to make it happen for as many cats as we can, and we're just letting everybody know that this new option is available. You know, it's safe, it's protected. And uh, you know you, you, you get as much money as you possibly can now to do what you need to do. Uh, 
Um, what what a treat! You know, we've we've uh, we've helped bring babies into to life here, where the person needed the money for the doctors bill. We help people build studios. And, you know, it's it's just uh, you know down payment for house. Like as I was saying earlier, it's just so great to be a part of that, and that allows me to to even make more music. So on my music side, I continue to write and continue to make music, and continue to look ways to uh, to change and and build the industry and and prepare this new model. You know, I'm. As I said earlier, I just got elected to the board of directors for the California Copyright Conference. Uh, we're meeting next week at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm allowed to be on, on that board, going to the Songwriters Hall of Fame and watch uh, Babyface and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis get inducted. And get to the political side of that, you know, a member of NARIS, uh, a member of the American Independent Music Publishers Association. So uh, I'm a member of the uh, Society of Composers and Lyricists. So uh, as you say, <laughs> I'm having a blast. That is incredible, Reggie. I mean, just to be able to give back like that, it's got to feel fantastic. You know? uh, and what an amazing uh, career you've had in the music industry and you continue to have. Just thank you so much for sharing it with myself and with the listeners and viewers today. Very grateful. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And uh, we'll do a part two whenever you, whenever you need to. We didn't, we didn't get into the, uh, <laughs> the Casanovas and the jump starts and the joys, and we'll, uh, we'll finish up on that good stuff. Yeah, we didn't get into I Want to Be Rich and all that good stuff, but uh, it is time uh, to wrap uh, up. Well, huh? we, we, have to, we have to close, but I want to be rich. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so after, uh, as I was saying, I always wanted to, to do more singing. So after leaving Midnight Star, you know, my brother and I, uh, you know, we did a bunch of production projects, but we always knew we were artists at heart. So we had to kind of like do both. We had to feed both sides of, uh, of the beast, so to speak. And uh, so the artist side, uh, opportunity came back. Once again, Dick Griffey, you guys want to do an album on Callaway? It's like, it's great. You know? So uh, the, uh, the song, I Want to Be Rich, was actually conceived uh, in the days that we were not rich at all. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, that we, we were actually working on the Park and the Dance Floor album. And we were so focused and so uh, uh, into what we had to do. It was, it was I mean, I, I, I broke into tears during that period to try to you know see that we really had to make it then and not later but uh melvin was sing in the mirror singing this, this hook i want to be rich i said that's a, i said that's a song but you know what it's not a song for no parking on the dance floor it's not a song for right now you know so many years later uh, i finished writing that song uh by myself vincent belinda melvin uh and uh and what, and what a song it came out to be, you know, it was so proud, you know, number two pop record and uh, lives on today. They, they just performed it on uh, Jimmy Fallon's show just a few nights ago. Uh, Kirk Cobain just did it on a rap song uh, where he uh, reinterpolated it. So uh, music lives forever when it's, when, it's, uh, when it's right. Phenomenal. Thanks, Reggie. Um, time right. to wrap up this uh, edition of Truth and Rhythm. A huge thanks again to my special guest, Mr. Reggie Calloway. Thank you so much, Reggie. Again, amazing experiences and uh, terrific music. Also, sincere thank you to viewers and listeners. Be sure to look out for upcoming Truth and Rhythm episodes and catch up with previous installments at funkinstuff.net and on YouTube, iTunes, and other leading podcast providers. If you're an artist or a music industry figure interested in being a guest on this program, or a fan wanting to see a particular person interviewed, send me an email, and let's see if we can make it happen. Until next time, on behalf of Reggie Calloway, this is Scott Goldfine saying, What a blast, Scott. <laughs> always keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>